Welcome to Rethink Retail, the show where we dive into the stories and strategies behind some of the most successful brands on the planet. From brick and mortar giants to e-commerce disruptors, we uncover the secrets to their success and deliver the keys to true retail transformation. So ask yourself, are you ready to rethink retail? The future of retail starts now. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Retail Therapy, a Rethink Retail exclusive podcast series where we examine retailers that have either a unique history, are making innovative changes to their business model, or are overcoming challenges in order to stay relevant in this incredibly competitive landscape. This week, we will be examining a retailer that started way back in the 40s and had a storied history that would span the globe, becoming one of the single largest toy retailers in history. Of course, Toys R Us. We will examine how a company that was so incredibly successful ended up where it is today. How did Toys R Us become a post-bankruptcy brand that is hoping for a comeback? Checking in for today's session are this week's retail therapists, Shelley Cohan and Sucharita Kadali. Sucharita is an industry analyst and top retail influencer who specializes in retail's digital transformation, BTC companies, store operations, marketing, and merchandising. She also worked at Toys R Us just before its PE buyout and wrote a memoir about what happened at the time when she was there. Now she's the Vice President and Principal Analyst at Forrester Research. Retail expert Shelley Cohan is a top retail influencer, professor, podcaster, retail pundit and speaker. She is a highly accomplished senior executive having served in the retail industry for over 25 years. Shelley has spoken and presented at various retail conferences and broadcast media throughout the industry. Hello to our therapists. Hello. Hi, Andrew. Now, before we dive into today's therapy session, let's first begin by learning a little bit more about our patient's history and what got them here today. In 1948, Charles Lazarus opened a baby furniture store in Washington, D.C. Starting a baby furniture store at the start of the baby boomer generation turned out to be quite fruitful. From 1957 to 1958, he introduced the Toys R Us brand and opened a 25,000 square foot discount store aimed at the discount retail market and selling a wide variety of merchandise. In 1966, Interstate Sales acquires Lazarus's company. Lazarus becomes the head of its toy division, overseeing what was now codified as Toys R Us stores. In 1978, Toys R Us becomes a public company and headquarters itself in Paramus, New Jersey. In 1981, Toys R Us is seeing incredible success, doubling its sales to nearly $750 million, despite other toy retailers suffering. In 1990, Toys R Us owns 25% of all toy retailing. In 96, expansion continues with the opening of 104 stores, including locations in Indonesia, Italy, Turkey, Saudi Arabia, and South Africa. By 1998, Toys R Us had stores in 26 countries, with plans to open only approximately 35 new stores. In 2004 and 2005, Bain Capital and KKR and Vornada Reality Trust bought Toys R Us in a $6.6 billion leveraged buyout deal, taking the company private. In 2009, the company bought multiple retailers, including KB Toys and FAO Schwartz, as well as e-commerce competitors eToys.com and Toys.com. In 2017, just eight years later, the toy company filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. In 2018, Toys R Us announced the liquidation of 182 US stores as part of further restructuring. 
By 2019, the company would find a way to emerge from its bankruptcy as True Kids. In 2022, the Toys R Us brand would return to select Macy's stores. CNN Business reports that the business is planning a major comeback. And in 2023, Toys R Us reporting to be expanding brick and mortar retail operations, adding 24 flagship stores across the country, set to be opened in the next year, with locations including airports and cruise ships. The company claims to be generating more than $2 billion in global retail sales as of 2022. So all of this brings us to today. What an incredible opportunity that Toys R Us have. Sitting there, if I was to be waking up as an executive in charge of this comeback, I would feel incredible pressure. But also what an insanely exciting opportunity to bring back this beloved brand. So let's start off by discussing some of the amazing opportunities that lie ahead and some of the key learnings from the past that are applicable today. Then after that, we'll consider what current perceptions of the company might be. But first, this is a brand that everyone has a story about, and I'm going to start with mine first. I remember I grew up uh, in Australia in a small town with a couple of thousand people, which is small, very small for Australian standards. And when I was about, I was going to, I'm guessing around eight or nine, we got a Toys R Us. Uh, it popped up. It was about a 15-minute drive from my house, and I was over the moon. Like, I have no clue what other brands other than Nintendo was in my brain at that age. Um, And to have this Toys R Us coming, there was just this aura of excitement. And it was a dreamland. Walking into it, you just see shelve after shelve of everything that I could possibly ever want. It was my parents' absolute worst nightmare. Um, But it just ingrained in me immediately from that moment. And it was just this, it was just insane how quickly um, I fell in love with this brand. And it seems to be everyone's perception around. Toys R Us. It's like it's like it's a, that loved brand that when it went down, it actually had quite a bit of sorrow to it rather than kind of realization. But I know we all have these stories, and Shelley, I would love to hear yours. Sure. So I actually lived overseas as a young child. So I grew up in Japan, Iran, and Germany. So my toy connection really is mostly related to Japan and the amazing toy stores they had there. When we moved back to the U.S. in the mid '70s and into the early '80s. That was my introduction into Toys R Us, the big heyday, uh, so to speak. And I was blown away when I went there with my mom. And the thing I thought was so impressive at my very young age was the assortment of product and also the organization of the store. So even back then, I was already a retailer. (laughs) I mean, I love that. And you're right. It is so incredibly unique, right? Now, Suturita, you bring a perspective that neither of us have, which is you worked there as well. So, like, what what has that been like from a brand that you would have known before, obviously arriving, and then walking through those those doors for the first time? Tell us tell us that story. Yeah, when I was there, it was just on the eve of the buyout, and I saw a lot of the reasons that it was a candidate for being bought out. I'll never forget, I was working in a store. I was in a management rotation program and I was an assistant manager at like one of the highest volume stores. Um, and it was in the Christmas timeframe. So very busy. Um, well, I can only imagine what very, that's like. <laughs> oh God. Yeah, was, there, there was, um, this was also when people were shopping in stores. So yes, it was definitely, <laughs> definitely very busy. There was an episode I remember where a woman came up to me and was like, I can't find jump ropes. Um, Where are your jump ropes? 
And the truth was we didn't carry jump ropes. And I was like, I'm sorry, ma'am, we don't have jump ropes. And she was livid. She, because I was standing in front of a Crayola fixture and there were like 50 Crayola skews on that were like all kinds of stuff that had nothing to do with crayons, but they were there. And she pointed to them and she was like, you have all this. And she started with F-bombs and profanity. You have all this, but you don't carry jump ropes. I can't find yo-yos, but you've got this. And I think that that pretty much embodied the problems at the company. It was just, you know, they they didn't have the merchandise right. Um, I think there was a statistic at one point that, 70% of what we carried in the average store turned less than once a year. So you can imagine, I mean, like literally I would walk through, I was like covered in dust every time I went home every night because the store was filthy with, you know, just stuff that was there just lying fallow. It had, you know, wasn't going to get purchased by anybody ever. And they didn't have a plan for, for getting rid of this stuff. So um, there were just so many issues and they were, they were a victim of their own um, bad decisions and old, old merchandising um, approaches that didn't keep up with the times. I mean, we can get into all kinds of stuff about market share and Amazon and, you know, the list goes on and on, but, you know, I'll, I'll stop now. <laughs> so, so Richard, <laughs> no which, which buyout, which buyout were you referencing? Because they've been bought out a few times. What point in time was that? I think it was the first one. It was the one with Bain Capital, KKR, and Bernardo. Yeah. Okay. It was the real estate PE. Uh, yeah, there's a real estate and PE buyout. It was the yeah the, the cut it, cut it up and and sell the bits buyout. It's so interesting to hear the, those stories because again, from afar, you know, as a pundit, it's really easy to make a whole bunch of assessments and judgments of a, of a brand, right? But you lived and breathed it, and to hear like the idea that you know seventy percent of stock turned over once a year or like, I mean, that's just, you know, breaks my heart as a retailer, of course, because, um, you know, they're the metrics that you stare at every single day to try and overcome. It's so fascinating. So if you think about what are the key learnings, what other key learnings do you think that if you, if you were sitting at the boardroom right now of this new comeback Toys R Us version, what are the number one, two, and three things that you're thinking about from, the, you know, we have to learn from our history? And I'll start with you, Sutrida, and then I'll come to you, Shelley. Yeah, I, and that's a good question. What one, two, and three? I'm, I, I would have to think about <laughs> think about what the what the rankings would be. First, I, I believe that it's literally just the brand at this point, right? And you're just relaunching in a very fresh way. One of the biggest questions is just even the health of the toy industry. And toys were a declining sector even when I was there. Um, They were declining even long before I was there. I used to work at Disney as well. And I remember that being a concern when this was like in the 90s working at Disney. You'd have like five-year-olds in focus groups who were like, you know, kind of, these toys are too little for me. These are for babies. They're not for me. And this would be like a five-year-old saying this. So children were changing what they saw as appropriate for them was changing even in the 90s. So you can imagine that trend of not really being into toys is is something that has been going on for some time. So if you're in the business of selling toys, that's kind of a problem. So you have to think about what 
age appropriate and parent appropriate merchandise do you have? The big trend that we started to see was a lot more electronics, a lot more digital stuff. So it's sort of, well, what's left for the toy industry or a physical manifestation of a store? Is it experiences? Is it activities. And it's tough, Andrew. There was this um, concept called Kidzania that started abroad. I think it started in like Mexico and, and, you know, kind of they, they've had um, different locations in different parts of the world. They were thinking of trying to bring it to the United States. It was more of a location-based entertainment. It was sort of like a Disney, like a mini, mini Disney type of facility, um, you know, kind of, and the thinking is, well, is that something that would resonate more with kids? And it didn't, that didn't resonate either. So I, I think that somebody has to figure out like what's what are or children going to buy or what are p- the parents of children going to buy that is exists in an age where children are just not as interested in in toys anymore. So that's kind of problem one. Then problem two is well, if you're just going to go with like whatever the highest selling SKUs. How are you going to compete with the cat, you know, with the behemoths in this space? Because the space is highly, highly concentrated. Again, even when I was there, it was like Walmart and Target. And and back then it was Toys R Us too. That was like, um, you know, that was also a player. Toys R Us went away, was replaced by Amazon. So it's basically those three players that dominate the toy industry now. What are you going to do to compete with them unless you have something that's differentiated? So there's that. And then the third issue is is e-commerce. Like, uh, you know, what are you doing digitally? What are you doing in the place where people are purchasing the stuff? More, more things in Q4 are purchased online. I mean, a huge part of toys is gifting. And Gifting often happens online because it's a heck of a lot easier than going to a physical store. So what's that strategy? And, you know, that was one of the big things when I was there that was kind of the begin. Well, I wouldn't say it was the beginning of the end. It was like another bad mistake and a series of bad mistakes. But uh, I don't know if you remember, they were one of the players that essentially gave their entire e-commerce business to Amazon because they didn't believe in it. And interestingly, the other companies that were in that cohort were Circuit City, Borders and Tower Records, Um, you know, all, all those, all those brands that we all love to visit nowadays. Yeah, That's yeah. Right. Although they're, exactly. they're strong physical exactly. presence. Yeah, no, the I, I, I exactly the tombstones of retail. Exactly right. You ignore disruption at your own at your own peril, right? You insert every user case you want to, blockbuster, etc. Adobe and Microsoft have come together to unite data, content, and processes, helping retailers transform every interaction along the customer journey to deliver the experiences customers expect. Unite cross-channel customer data with full-scale activation capabilities to deliver personalized and AI-driven retail experiences. With more than 60 out-of-the-box product integrations, our joint offering helps retailers increase value from technology investments while maximizing the value of first-party data. Connect the dots with connected clouds, Adobe and Microsoft, a partnership that unlocks the possible. Um, Shelley, what about you? Like, if you think about the, you know, the the points that Suchirita just made, you know, the idea of like, what are your experiments that are going to help create these unique experiences that are different? But what else? What other learning can you think of that um, that you would want? You know, you're in front of the board; they're asking you your opinion. What what should you learn from? Oh, I would give them three things right off the bat. One, don't get heavy in debt. Watch your debt. Number two, you have to have a distribution infrastructure that supports the seamless integration and meeting the consumer where they're shopping, 
you know, so that's all the buy online, pick up in store, the email, e-commerce, all of that together. And the third thing I would tell them is the toy companies are great partners. So WHP should leverage this aspect of the business to their benefit. I think, I mean, fabulous advice from both of you. I think there's some really interesting correlations too, because I think some of the the toy companies not evolving with kids was also a contributing factor to Toys R Us because they kept stocking the toy company stuff, even though it wasn't necessarily relevant, which is, you know, I can, like, hindsight's 2020 always, right? But, you know, we look at that and say, there's a whole bunch of Swiss, it's a Swiss cheese model. All of the holes, little holes appeared and they all just happened to line up. So if we think about competition then, let's segue a bit to like now, like we're we're sitting there, we're we're waking up and we're, you know, we've just come back from our morning, whatever rhythm, you know, routine is, we're ready to go into our Toys R Us working day, staring down the opportunity to revive this incredible brand, knowing that there's heaps of people working every day to try and help revive it. What are you thinking about in terms of competition? There's physical stores. We've touched a little bit on e-commerce as well. There's newer experimental players like Camp who are kind of going down that experiential theatrical pathways. Like what are we thinking there? Sutrid, I'll start with you. The questions I would ask are, um, you know, kind of who are the people that they have that are advising them on some of these newer innovative strategies? And are there any examples of success, even in other industries, like um, travel and hospitality has a lot of innovation. The restaurant industry has a lot of innovation. And are, are there any, you know, examples of success or ways to be creative and innovative that would apply um, there? The, the other part that I, I think is harder than ever in retail now is that um, it's much harder to just, you know, create one stamp, you know, kind of one model and just replicate it everywhere. Big box is, I think, out of the question, but even within smaller boxes, you still have to be unique, have an interesting layout. You have to spend on your store fixtures. You and, And you have to change these things frequently. You have to be thinking about geographically what may make sense. And, you know, maybe 50% of the store you could keep absolutely the same in multiple locations, but the other 50% may have to be wildly different. Um, You know, and you see that even, even like in camp locations, you know, I mean, I think that things are just different in every store as they should be. So I, I hope that there's an appetite to invest, to differentiate, because if all it is, and you know, that's what, what has often disappointed me about a lot of new stores that open is if that it's, it's a miniature version of like boring big box stores, that's not going to cut it. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, so you, you need to think about what are the places where people do go and enjoy time and look at, theme parks and, and, you know, like I said, like restaurants where people spend time and, and see what are the, the elements of the look and the feel and the offerings that could be valuable. I I think there's incredible references there. I think, Citarita, like the, the concept too of, to your point, you know, you need to have a value proposition that is unique. There's a reason there's a million textbooks that write those words in every opening structure is, you know, what is it that differentiates you um, that is, you know, going to be different from me going to buy the same toy from Target or from Walmart, especially if I'm already there. I'm there because it's a mission for me to be there for something else. How do I then, you know, 
create enough value for me to want to come at a second journey to my, you know, my, my navigational guidance for the trip that I'm on at the moment. Shelley, what about you? What are you thinking in terms of like competition with the, the existing players in market physically, like the targets, the Walmarts of the world? Well, certainly Suturita brings up a really great point, which is the cookie cutter approach does not work. We know that doesn't Mm -hmm. work. And that's definitely not the approach to take. And keep in mind, as a little fun fact, 80% of the children's apparel market is independent retailers. So we're talking about localization and niche markets. So, you know, really playing into localization and niche markets, differentiated product, uh, agree with that. And, you know, we can talk about the Walmarts and the Targets, which, you know, take up a lot of the physical store retail space, but also online. But also we'd be remiss if we also didn't bring up, you know, the indirect competition of the likes of Amazon, who, by the way, if you recall, three years ago, they started doing their toy catalog. So they send a toy catalog out every holiday that has all the toys in it. So, you know, that's that's problematic for Toys R Us to really keep their eyes on. They really have to look at their direct and indirect competition. I think, I mean, that's such great advice for any retailer anywhere because too often if I sit in, you know, I'm advising a client, they'll talk about the direct competitors and they'll ignore everyone else and I'm like, stop it. You know, I was sitting with a telco once recently and I was saying, you need to look at Uber. And they're like, Uber? I'm like, well, yeah, because they're giving transparency. Like they're giving something that customers are now going to expect everywhere and you need to keep up with that. So stop being so blind um, to the peripheries. I think that's a really, uh, let's talk, let's now talk a little bit on the e-com side and pivot a little bit because there is the different players that exist out there, whether it be the Amazons, whether it be the, you know, the, the unique localized, more, you know, um, niche marketplaces that are popping up everywhere where kids want to be online, you know, YouTube kids and all of those places that have feeder markets to to other retail brands. What do we need to do? Into what is the role, I suppose, of e-commerce if I'm Toys R Us that's going to make me win, Suturita? Well, e-commerce is incredibly important and has been important. And that was hopefully one of the big lessons they learned is by ignoring it the first time that was not helpful. So they definitely Whatever this next iteration takes, um, there, there at the very least, there needs to be the ability to purchase seamlessly, and you know you don't need to have like some, you know, kind of top of the line experience. You can you can you know stand up a big commerce or Shopify shop, and and you know kind of it serves that purpose. Um, the the bigger questions are around a full digital strategy, kind of how much, as Shelley had mentioned from it, the agnosticism of the distribution, the buy online, pick up in store, if you want to pull from a marketplace, a third party marketplace, some of the inventory. So there are a lot of things there. Uh, other parts of the digital strategy are what's, you know, how prominent are they in social media and, you know, kind of have they let people be aware. Uh, to your point, like, you know, Amazon at this point has taken all the Toys R Us names and, you know, they know who all the parents with children are. So what is Toys R Us now that has been asleep for as long as it has? What are they now going to, you know, or dead in, you know, and, you know, depending on when in history we're, we're actually looking at this for it to rise again, you're, you have to, you're basically building a database from, from scratch and you have a little bit of name recognition, but what are you going to do to, to capitalize on it? And, um, you know, kind of digital can be, well, digital for a lot of digitally native players is really expensive, 
But digital for a company that may actually have some recognition may actually be, you know, kind of more cost effective, but TBD, because that's only as good as the marketers running your marketing plan. Well, I I definitely, really good point. I was just going to build on what Saricha said that this, so I think one of the smartest things Toys R Us did, and I don't know if you'll agree with this, is partnering up with Macy's to do their online strategy. And I think it's brilliant because, you know, while Macy's may be not at the top of the list of the most omni-channel greatest uh, online retailers, they have a great infrastructure and and they can really help Toys R Us kind of get up and running very quickly. So that that scaling that Macy's has can Toys R Us can take advantage of that. And I also think, you know, online's challenging. It's very challenging to execute a profitable business, the returns, the distribution, the last mile delivery. But with all that said, that marketing aspect could really drive foot traffic to the stores. So this integrated commerce is key and I agree. Um, with Suturita about the social aspect, you know, they can utilize social media sentiment monitoring and really get ahead of, you know, the trends and what consumers are really thinking and feeling. Blue Yonder is the world leader in retail digital supply chain transformations and omni-channel commerce fulfillment. Our end-to-end cognitive business platform enables retailers and logistic providers to best fulfill customer demand from planning through to delivery. With Blue Yonder, you'll unify your data, supply chain, and retail commerce operations to unlock new business opportunities and drive automation, control, and orchestration to enable more profitable, sustainable business decisions. Blue Yonder, fulfill your potential. It's so true. And like you also throw in there, um, you know, the trend of customer collaboration and they're kind of like, you know, raising up and utilizing the people who do love your brand. There's going to be some really interesting opportunities for them there, I think, as they, as they do start reviving what the brand means. But we're also all talking the target market for, for me anyway, if I was sitting in there is uh, who are all the parents who are buying toys for kids who love my brand? Because there ain't no kid who knows the brand. Uh, well, there's very, there's going to be very few of them anyway. Uh, I uh, as I did some incredibly deep market research with my nine year old stepson on this topic, and said, "What do you think about Toys R Us?" And he said, "Do you just mean toys? No clue, zero clue about it. But definitely knows Ryan's toy review. Definitely knows Camp because we've been there several times. Like knows all of these different things that are kind of an elevator around it, but." If I think about that and I like I take that nine-year-old view, like obviously your target market is who owns the money and the money is the parents. But you know, there's nothing that influences a parent more than a kid nagging. Um, but in saying that, if I, I want to think about the in-store experience, like what is the and the product range and all of those kinds of things, what is the the differentiation element? You know, we've spoken about e-com, it's hard, but they've got to do it. We've spoken about physical against the bigger players where you have to differentiate. What can we do? Like again, what an incredible opportunity to revive an amazing brand. What are the experiences we think about? Because I I go to you know camp where kiddo loves it, but I've never bought anything there other than the ticket to the experience. So basically to me, to him, it's a theme park. I've not bought a single toy for I think I've bought my sell for beer at the bar at the front. But I I think that's about the only revenue I've given them. Oh, it's, uh, this is one of the things where I'm, I'm glad that somebody else ultimately has the responsibility for this because (laughs) it is not going to be an easy one. I think that I would, first I would start with, um, 
where's the location first? You know, I mean, is it a tourist location? Is it more residential? Because I think the answer is going to be different um, for for different scenarios. So um, if you are relying on tourist traffic, that may have a completely different assortment strategy and an experience strategy where it, it could be about some combination of souvenirs with food and beverage. And, and you see that a lot in like the Times Square stores that, that seem to do incredibly well, like the M&M store and the Disney store and whatnot. So, so I think that that's, that, that would be one strategy. If it is more residential, you're dealing with locals again, like, you know, kind of what's the store radius. Are you looking for, for people coming from a long distance? Are you looking for people, you know, coming like 30 miles or more, you know, or is it like more of a neighborhood experience? Because I think even those would have different implications for, um, you know, is it primarily birthday and special events or, um, it, you know, I, I do re- re- remember that there was a concept called Jeffrey that, that Toys R Us created at one point where it was a combination of like a birthday party. It had a little bit of Chuck E. Cheese elements and a little bit of the Toys R Us plus Baby R Us and, you know, clothing as well. So so it was a lot, it was a little bit of a mishmash of everything, which, and they never really gave it time to, to get incubated. So I, I do wonder if maybe bringing back some concepts like that um, makes sense. One of the things that is important to remember about the toy industry is that the vast majority of its revenue happens in like five weeks in November and December. Mm -hmm. And um, what that means is that the store just sits there, you know, kind of maybe servicing a few birthday gifts every now and then for the other um, 10 plus months of the year. So the question is, you know, kind of, do you make it more of a location destination, whether it's servicing birthday parties or activities or classes of some sort? And then you really flex into the gifting part in November and December, or, um, you know, kind of how can you reduce any inventory um, dependence that, you know, do you rely on more of a, of a showrooming approach where, you know, maybe people order things and you can have them delivered to the store and, um, you know, you can test everything and then give it back and, you know, it kind of gets shipped back. So, so I, I think that there, there are lots of things that need to be experimented with. I don't know that I have, you know, kind of, um, any formula Mm. for, for great success here. It's a, a but the opportunity though is exciting because again the idea of if if the CEO tapped me on the shoulder and said, "Come up with the world's craziest pop up strategy ever to just like really build our brand and build it around that Black Friday through holiday period area and make it big," I would like that'd be the coolest job in the world, right? Like so, like the the because you've got the brand, you've got the capability to do it. You're certainly going to have hopefully at least access to the SKUs that are going to help pull it off. You could have tremendous fun with that. Not only that, you know, the, I remember ha- having going to a birthday party at a Toys R Us in Geelong, Victoria, Australia, where it's essentially it was like a gift registry from the store. So you didn't have to think; you just picked it up. You know, you just kind of went in, found the thing off the registry, and then all of a sudden it was wrapped in the room for you. Like there's a thousand things that they can they can learn from that are all very exciting for uh, well for kids. It's just going to be expensive for us. Shelley, what do you think? Well, first of all, I would also add to that um, customer base, the grandparents, because they spend a lot of money on toys. So right, cool. Grandparents. And um, uh, so it's interesting, your experience at the camp store. So it's fascinating. I'm sure many other 
customers that have done the experience at the camp store will say the same thing. I went there, I bought the ticket. I didn't buy any product. And so, you know, a beer doesn't count as supporting the toy industry, Andrew. I'm just going to mention that. But um, uh, that's a, that's you do support their margins, though. I was going to say, for uh, high margins on alcohol, I'm going to put that out there. And generally speaking, if you're entertaining a child in New York City, alcohol may sometimes be required. And, and it's way higher margin than likely the toy itself. That's a very true. Uh, so true. But, you know, I do think the in-store experience for Toys R Us, the new Toys R Us and the stores are building out has to incorporate technology um, because that's what consumers are looking for and they want. I also think they do need to bring forth the nostalgia and aspect of the brand, which I know they're putting a lot of effort behind in doing that. Um, and providing great products, unique, exclusive products that you can't get everywhere else, but also working with the toy companies to kind of level up the assortment while at the same time providing the basics like the jump rope or whatever, you know, whatever is really popular right now. And that's easy to see on TikTok and social media, making sure you have the basics there, too. It's, I mean, the, th- the reflection that I'm having through this conversation is there's no shortage of ideas. The, the <laughs> concept of what we can learn from the mistakes of the you know our ghosts past but also what the you know what we can learn from existing competitors that are, whether they be direct or indirect um, and then all of the different opportunities that the new world of retail tech and and design and and layout and real estate can offer there is like how do you pick one like like what if you're sitting in the the and this is not an uncommon problem in retail that it, most people know the answers there are very rarely do people come to a you know a big retail shows expo floor and go man i didn't know that it was that existed everyone knows they exist it's how do i choose the right ones and like what what would your advice be to you know if you're sitting in that room to these you know excited optimistic hopeful incredibly talented team members who are trying to revive this thing how do they choose how do they where do they focus I think it depends first on what is their budget and how much are they willing to um, dedicate to this? Because if you have an unlimited budget and, you know, kind of your Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos and trying to go to space, like I think that it's, it's very different. But what I've typically found is that most people in retail don't like to spend a lot, particularly in physical goods retail, and therein lies the issue. I would actually probably bring in a great restaurant operator. And I keep going back to the restaurant industry because I got to tell you what I see, the restaurant industry is one of, it's perhaps the most competitive industry in the entire world. And it is super low margin, yet it attracts more innovative, hopeful entrepreneurs than any other industry. And at some level, you have your big chains, but even the big chains are a teeny tiny portion of what people Mm. spend on food away from home. And you'll have some operators that have developed some level of like local scale, or, you know, they may have like 50 locations or whatever. And some of the best ones will have like five to 10. And they, there's just so much creativity in everything from how they present the the nittiest, grittiest of their SKUs, which is a menu item, to the look and feel of their stores, to the training of their staff. And there's, they just continue, there's a reason that we 
everybody in the world is spending more and more on food away from home. And it is a sector which has really just exploded in the last 30 to 40 years. So there's a lesson there in mm you know, store layout, in store design, in training, in assortment selection that everybody should learn and apply because the best ones do differentiate themselves. And there are a ton of case studies of companies that don't differentiate themselves. But to differentiate yourself does require investment. And technology can be part of that investment. I, I don't deny that at all. But uh, the big, the most important part is what, you know, kind of what are you, what are you selling actually? And because again, I go back to, if you're just selling the same thing that Walmart, Target and Amazon are selling, you can just hang it up right now because that's not going to get very far. Transform your brand with Amperity's customer data platform integrated seamlessly with Microsoft. Scale your customer data, unlock comprehensive customer views, and turn insights into action. Deliver personalized experiences, brand loyalty, and secure a competitive edge. Propel your brand to new heights with tools designed for success. Don't just compete, dominate the retail industry with the power of Amperity and Microsoft. Transform data into your greatest asset and elevate your brand today. We raise an important point, Shelley. I'll come to you in a second to close this out with recommendations of focus. But um, the two, well, two points actually, like that idea of what are you selling is is you know the you know, box one and box one doesn't matter where you're buying it is still the, is still box one. What are you curating around it is the differentiation of what you know what you're selling. The, the core product is not what you're selling. You're selling what you're, what is your pack, how you're packaging it, whether that be with experiences or curation or expertise or discovery or whatever, um, you know, leasing, who knows? There's a thousand different ways that they can kind of come up with that, which is interesting. But the second one I think is, is fascinating with the context of the market changing so quickly. Um, you know, you, you, you've kind of got the ability to build a large scale retailer from scratch in the context of 2023, which means, wow, you, you build it with agility built in. Your ability to move on a dime to react to market is what you, it, number one focus for me would be is the store teams, I'm sure, will invent some really cool store designs and the merchandising teams will merchandise them well and within that space and from whatever the product team's giving them. But me, it's like I just want to build a retailer that can move like that and just change and adapt to something cool and meet a moment that happens in market. I think that would be super cool. Shelley, bring us home. What would you, what's your focus area? Where do you think we should uh, we should lean in? Well, I think well, I think WHP is a great organization that's going to make smart decisions about how to operate the business including lease agreements, locations, partner agreements. They really are the experts in the field of running stores. So you couple that with the nostalgia of the Toys R Us brand, and you have a great synergy along with that um, strategic partnership with Macy's. So I think, I think it's headed in the right direction. And here's my last big tip. I think that Toys R Us and WHP should be really looking at retail media networks. It's prime for this type of model as a key to drive revenue and its own innovation. Uh, one that's and a main, great, great point, Shelley. That's such yeah, a sorry. good point. No, Citrata, go, please, bring it home. 
Yeah, no, no, that's a great, great point because one of the biggest opportunities within retail media is the in-store component. And if they're launching from scratch, they have the ability, and especially in some of the potentially higher traffic areas, whether it is like, I, I am a believer that any flat surface, it can be a window, it can be the floor, certainly like a POS screen, any flat surface can be an advertising surface. So the number of opportunities there are endless. And maybe ultimately, that's the way, Andrew, they monetize themselves. So even if you do walk in and don't purchase anything, or the only thing you purchase is a beer, at least they make money through the eyeballs, which is, is how, and, yeah, right. How such every, a good every point. other media company. Yeah. And, it, and like I, I was uh, hosting some safaris in New York recently with some Australian retailers and I shared with them the wall that Walmart's retail media network profits or, or, or revenues are greater than Australia's largest retailer. That's crazy. And it's just phenomenal. And Australia's small, but it's not that small. So like this, that's a considerable kind of opportunity. This has been fantastic. It's been so good learning from both of you, Citra Shelley. Thank you so much for joining in on this conversation. Thank you Thank so you. much for having me. It's a pleasure being And we'll sign off by wishing all of the people who are there to revive this brand the best of luck. I can't wait to see what you do. I can't wait to walk in there and feel that childhood sentimentality again. It's very exciting. So thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for listening to the Rethink Retail podcast. Don't forget to join us next week for another episode. And if you're interested in being a guest on the show, apply at rethink.industries slash podcast guest. That's rethink.industries slash podcast guest. Follow us on Twitter at rethink underscore retail and show some love by subscribing on iTunes podcast app. Until next time.